summary, the measures focused on personal income tax cuts, some FBT concessions, and a number of measures for businesses centered around increased deductions, possible job credits, and loss carryback measures. So those, those are probably the big ticket items that come out. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to another new update of Tax Talks, update number 23. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The budget for 2021, the budget that will make or break this century or at least the coming decade. Here's Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne with the details. Probably as a tax lawyer, it's probably not the most exciting budget overall. It does have a lot of, um, I guess, what's been described as uh, sugar hits and um, incentives for businesses. And that's probably fair enough, given the, the situation we're in with COVID and trying to um, kickstart the, the economy and encourage business to make investments and um, for individuals to go out and, and spend and, and so forth. Andrew, just very quickly, when you say it's not the most exciting for a tax lawyer, what kind of budget would be exciting for a tax lawyer? We talk about what's what's not there. Things like Division 7A, uh, sort of wholesale reform, new exemptions or rollovers or, or dealing with individual tax residency there's not much structural change to to any various area really there's more sort of a suite of cash boosts in various forms available for the for the most part for individuals as part of the budget there's there's essentially four measures that I wanted to talk about There's changes to personal income tax rates. There is deductibility for certain education expenses. There's arrangements regarding granny flats and the low income tax offset, which is being increased. Personal tax number one, changes to personal income tax rate. From a personal income tax perspective, probably the biggest one is the government's uh, stage two of the personal income tax plan. This was scheduled to come in, I believe, on 1 July 2022. However, that's been brought forward. It is already, in, uh, once legislation's part, will already be in stage two. So that applies from 1 July 2020. So basically brought forward. Yeah, brought forward by two years. And essentially what that does is, firstly, the 19% income tax bracket increases from 37,000 to 45,000. So essentially marginal tax rate up to $45,000 is 19%. Of course, you got the, the tax-free threshold below. The threshold for the 32.5% increases quite significantly. So the previous threshold of that rate was 90,000 and the new rate is 120,000. So it's, so it's increased by 30,000. Yes. So that means anybody who earns $120,000 or more will receive the biggest 
chunk of the tax cut. Yeah, if people on $120,000 would receive the, the biggest chunk of that of that tax cut. The, the government still committed to stage three of the personal income tax cut plan, which is scheduled for, I believe, the 2024 slash 25 income year. Yes. So it's still a few years away. And given what's happened over the last 12 months, it's um, pretty hard to predict where we'll be in four years' time. But there's some very, very large tax cuts as part of that stage three. Yes, and this stage three basically increases the um, now $120,000 threshold to $200,000. So basically cutting out the 37% altogether. So that yeah, it's quite a huge change. Yes. So after that, we basically just have three tax rates, apart from zero percent, of course. We have nineteen percent, up to forty-five thousand. Then we have thirty-two and a half percent, up to two hundred thousand, and then we have forty-five percent over two hundred thousand. Correct. Yep. Yep. That'll be a very, very significant um, tax cut if that. That comes through, but um, that, that's several years away. So is this phase two tax cut, that's not the most expensive part of the budget, correct? Do you have a number, how many billions that will cost? Yeah, I do have the, the numbers. So the budget papers, um, they cost how, how much the budget measures will either bring in or cost the revenue over the next four years. So they're the estimate periods. And this measure is expected to cost, over the next two years, it's expected to cost around about $22 billion. So that's quite a large chunk. Is that the most expensive so measure? It's, it's quite large. It's actually, I don't actually think it is a lot, the most expensive measure because there are some. The infrastructure spending is probably quite a lot more than that. So that's the first measure that affects us as tax agents or accountants or bookkeepers, and that is the cut in income tax rates. And the really nice thing is that it's already in place. So you can basically straight away, I mean, once it's through legislation, but I expect that's just a matter of one or two weeks. Once it's through parliament, you can basically straight away adjust the pay-as-you-go withholding rates and basically start receiving this tax cut straight away. Yeah, correct. So as soon as it goes through We'll have adjustments to the POIG withholding rates and um, individuals will start seeing those benefits come through. I think they're talking about before Christmas. So they'll have to legislate soon for that. I'll focus on the other individual ones first and then perhaps turn to the, the corporate tax matters. So there's two others of interest to individuals. Personal tax number two, deductibility of certain training expenses. Deductibility of education and training expenses for individuals. So based on the principles of, of income tax law, if I'm, um, say, an accountant and I want to do some upskilling and some sort of further study that's related to accounting, that would be deduct, and I incur that cost personally, then that would be deductible to me so I can use it as a deduction to offset my income. But if, say, I was being made redundant or I I wanted to transition out of accounting and um, perhaps, let's say, I wanted to be an engineer and I enrolled in an engineering degree, then that wouldn't be deductible because that loss or outgoing is in the cost of that course. 
isn't sufficiently connected to what's producing accessible income for me right now. So from a deductibility perspective, if you're incurring further education expenses or training expenses that are related to your current job that are um, likely to get you a promotion or perhaps a bonus or do your current job better, then those are deductible. But the case law has made it clear over the years that those that are not related to your immediate job are not deductible. So the government's announced that they've announced an FBT, that they're going to introduce an FBT exemption for employer-related retraining and reskilling. But they've also announced that the government's going to consult on potential changes to allow individuals to deduct education and training expenses they incur themselves, even when those expenses are not related to their current employment. I guess the devil in the de- will be in the detail with this one. At the moment, it's, it's just at a consultation phase, but it was included as part of the budget that the government acknowledging the current system is a bit of a disincentive for, for individuals to sort of retrain and reskill in other areas. And that's something that they're going to look at um, potentially introducing an income tax deduction for for those sort of retraining or reskilling or redeployment type type costs. Okay, so at the moment we only have retraining and reskilling as an FPT exemption, but it is possible that it also comes through as a deduction in individual income tax returns. Yeah, well, the the budgets announced that they're going that the government's going to introduce that exemption from FPT for employers that are. So employees that are redundant or soon to be redundant. So that's, budget says that's that's going to be introduced. And the government is also consulting on bringing in an income tax deduction for uh, employees themselves to, to claim those sort of expenses as well. Personal tax number three, arrangements for granny flats. The last one from an individual perspective that I wanted to flag was in relation to what's colloquially termed granny flats, the government's accepted recommendations made in relation to improving the CGT rules for um, for formally granting a, a granny flat. So this is the situation where you have a landowner, um, they're in a property and their elderly parents um, might want to live on a, a small property at the back of their property hence the granny flat. However, under the current rules, there may be um, adverse tax consequences involved in actually giving a formal license. Those could be consequences on actually granting the license. They could be Centrelink or asset test consequences on the individuals who are getting the licenses. And there's also effects potentially on losing or partially losing the main residence exemption, depending on the agreement. So what the government said is they've acknowledged that there are problems and that because of those problems, what people often do is put in place informal arrangements, so not documented. And obviously those sort of informal arrangements don't have legal protection for people who might be vulnerable like uh, elderly parents or disabled individuals. So what the government's announced is they're going to provide a CGT exemption for granny flat arrangements that are created under uh, formal written agreements, and that will apply to uh, older Australians and those with a disability. 
that's all the information we have at this stage. We don't know all the ins and the outs. We'll obviously need to wait for legislation to know, oh, what's an older Australian? What does the written formal agreement need to cover? And what actually is this CGT relief? Does it, does it, is it the main residence exemption? Is it on the grant? Is it, um, does it deal with the Centrelink part? Those will be questions for, I guess, the legislation. Personal tax number four, low income tax offset. And then I think there's a fourth one, and that is the low income tax offset that increases from $445 to $700, correct? Yeah, that's correct as well. The, the, um, the low income um, tax offset is, is the fourth one, yeah. I think there are two different ones. There's LIHTO, which is low income tax offset, and that is $445, now increasing to $700. But then you also have the low yeah, and middle income yeah. tax offset. So there are two different offsets. And I think the yeah, El, yeah, yep. the MITO, so the low and middle income tax offset, I think that one doesn't change. That one ranges from $225 to $1,080. That one doesn't change, but the LIHTO, so the low income tax offset, I think that increases to $700, correct? Yeah, correct. So the LIHTO goes from $445 to $700. And the L MITO, or the low, low to middle um, offset, uh, is retained for the, the current income year. It doesn't say what happens with it after that. Presumably, if it's they're talking about just retaining it for this year, then it won't be around the year after, perhaps. So that one is wait and see. Yep. So those four changes are for personal income tax returns. There's a few for business and particularly... Well, some of them are smaller business, but some apply to, to business more broadly. For, for businesses and private businesses, as part of the budget, there's a variety of measures that are targeted to private business. And I'm going to go through six of the, six of the main ones as part of this talk. Business number one, job maker hiring credit. And maybe I'm jumping ahead, but there's also, I've, I've heard this word job maker now. That is not an extra scheme, is it? That is just summarizing job seeker and job keeper, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit unfortunate we need to deal with all these these labels, you know, job seeker, job keeper, job maker. What's described as the job maker plan in the budget paper is three separate measures. And I think usually the term is is referring to the credit scheme that's encouraging businesses to hire younger people. So that's the scheme that is for 18 to 35, correct? Yep. So under this, under this scheme, which is called the Job Maker Hiring Credit, essentially eligible employers will, will get a cash payment each week, uh, also calculated on a weekly basis for each uh, new eligible employee that they hire from 7th of October. And that payment will be either $100 uh, a week over a 12 month period or $200. So it's either 100 or 200. And the 200 rate applies if the employer is aged between 16 and 29. And the lower rate applies if they're 30 to 35. So, so it's clearly aimed at younger persons. The uh, employees, the new employees need to have been a job seeker before they were hired, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So there's, there's, they need to either be on well, they need to either have received a job seeker, a youth allowance, or a parenting payment. Those are the three that are listed. And that needs to be for at least one month out of the three months prior to when they were hired. So they, they need to be on one of those and need to have received one of those payments. And 
the employee needs to work a minimum of 20 hours per week on average. Okay, so I jumped ahead because you probably had this as a measure for business, correct? That's one of the measures for, for, for business. Yes. That's one of the biggest ones. Business number two, unlimited instant asset write-off. So there's a couple of other big ones, and one of them is, is that there's going to be a greatly expanded instant asset write-off scheme. And we've sort of had different rules at different times about the instant asset write-off. You might recall that way back ago, it was $1,000 was the, was the cap for the instant asset write-off. And then everything over that had to be depreciated. And that's then changed to 20,000. I think it then changed to 30,000. And then in March, at the, start, uh, at the start of the COVID pandemic, it was increased to 150,000. So it's moved around quite a lot. What's happening under the budget is it's being moved a lot further. Going forward for businesses, so long as their aggregated annual turnover is less than $5 billion, that's with a B, they'll be eligible for this measure. And it enables them to deduct the full cost of eligible capital assets, so long as they're acquired after budget night and first used or installed by 30 June 2022. And so this has no limit. The this has no limit. So the asset purchase could be 1 million, 2 million, 10 million. It could be anything. There's no limit. You've received an immediate tax deduction. And I think this, together with the tax carryback, which you're probably going to cover later, I think it's very interesting. Yeah, that's a good insight because what you'll have here is, let's say you've got a business, it's got $100 million of turnover and it buys some fantastic um, machinery that costs $10 million dollars they're going to get an instant deduction for that entire $10 million, which might cause them to have a loss from a, from a tax perspective. Yes. I'll, go, I'll come to that, Carrie, the, the loss rules in a second. Yes, so, so, so there's no cap on this. It's not limited to 20000 or 150. There's actually no cap on the amount of money spent. The only limits are that it needs to be after budget night and before 30 June 2022. And the business needs to have aggregated annual turnover of less than $5 billion. If you're a small or medium-sized business with turnover of less than $50 million, the measure also applies to second-hand assets that are acquired. So if you're above that, then it's only new depreciable assets and then the costs of improvements. And this is a big one for the budget. It's estimated to cost around $26.5 billion over the, over the four-year estimate period. So that's obviously because deductions are being brought forward, whereas without those rules, they may be staggered over 5, 10, 15 years. It's, um, yeah, so it's $26.7 billion and it's for the entire measure. So it's $26.7 billion over the forward estimates period. Um, but it doesn't distinguish between the secondhand assets and, and new assets. So everybody can claim an immediate tax deduction for new assets. And as long as your turnover is below 50 million, you can also claim an immediate tax deduction for secondhand assets. Yeah, correct. Correct. Business number three, loss carryback. So the next one tying into that, and, and um, as, as we just discussed, There's going to be a loss carryback measure introduced. This, you may remember going back about seven years now that the Gillard government actually did introduce loss carryback rules. 
I think they survived all of about one year before the coalition government came in and um, they were then no more. Now we're back to uh, lost carryback rules again. So the difference here is that these rules are being described as temporary rules. And what they essentially allow is if you've got a business which has generated profits previously and makes a tax loss for certain income year, you can actually apply the loss to the previous profits. Usually the way the tax system works is if you've got, if you make losses and then you have profit, you can apply the losses to the profit, but not the other way around. What will happen if this is legislated is that if you make losses in the 1920 year or the 2021 year or the 2021-22 year, they can be applied to the profits that have been uh, already taxed in the 1819 year or later years. For for example, if you had a bad year in, in, in 1920, but you had a good year in 1819, let's say you lost a million, like you had a million dollars of losses in um, 1920, but taxable profit of 500,000 the year before, then you can apply that $500,000 of losses against the previous taxable income, mm-hmm. which would result in a, a refundable tax offset for the 1920 year. Can you just very re- quickly reject my memory regarding company tax rates for base rate entities? For 2019-20, our base rate entity rate is still 27 and a half. For 2018-19, yeah. yeah, I think it's also 27 and a half, correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then for 20... Yeah, that's a good um, point. And then for 2021, I think, is it going down? Yeah, 2020, yeah, we're down at 26% now. Yeah, 26%. And then 21-22? That's down at 25%. 25%. So how will it work? Let's say for some reason, we, we did still reasonably well in the just past financial year. We paid tax of 27.5%, but now things are going really bad and we are making a loss. And so then how does it work? Because we are now just paying 26%, but last year we paid 27.5%. Can we then claim the tax back at 27.5% or do we only get back 26%? That's a really good question, and it's not clear from from the measure whether whether you can get the benefit of the you know the tax paid at the higher rate, or it's just calculated based on the year that you're in now. Yeah, not not clear from the announcement whether that's going to be the case or not. And that is especially if you do an instant asset write-off. So let's say you're doing mm. reasonably well. So you, you, you're paying tax in the 2020 year, but now you're still doing well, but you're doing an instant asset write-off of a massive new acquisition. So in 21, you have a loss, even though you're doing well. Then the question is, yeah, how is the... My, my gut feeling is that you only get 26% back, not 27 and a half. Yeah, I would say so. That's um, that, would, that would be my thoughts as well. In terms of limitations, the only limit is there's a, there's a turnover limit of $5 billion for this one as well. So there's no other limits other than the entity needs to be a corporate tax entity. So if you're dealing with a discretionary trust or unit trust or partnership or sole trader, they're not going to get any uh, any benefit from these measures, but, but companies will. Okay, so only companies, no unit trust or discretionary trust or individuals. Yeah. It makes sense because in a company you have a static 
tax rate. So it's easy to move losses backwards and forwards, whereas mm. with any other entity, you have variable marginal tax rate. So if you start moving losses backwards and forwards, you yeah you create big confusion about what tax rate you should apply. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, just one more thing about this. I mean, in the end, company tax rates is really only a prepayment of tax because, of course, in the end, company profits are taxed at an individual basis and you just receive a franking credit. So this tax loss carry back is basically just uh, it's just helping companies cash flow because in the end, it just all it's just all taxed at individual basis anyway, and that doesn't change. You know, the marginal tax rate you basically pay on company profits on an individual level doesn't change in the slightest no absolutely not if you're um if you're a resident of australia then um it, it doesn't change at all because you you'll, you'll pay you'll pay tax once dividends declared so it's really just a timing issue on whether dividends are declared or they're used for reinvestment or working capital yes because of course your franking credits go down if you now start claiming tax losses it means you pay less tax hence you have less franking credits so when you end up distributing profits then yeah you you pay the top up anyway absolutely absolutely good so this is just a timing difference yeah yeah okay number four business number four increase to small business turnover threshold we've got an increase to the small business entity turnover threshold so it's a little confusing because the moment we've got a small business entity definition which is generally a $10 million annual turnover definition other than for the small business CGT concessions where there's a $2 million turnover threshold. And this applies to things like the 10 million applies to things like simplified trading stock rules. It applies for the small business restructure rollover and a variety of other bits that are targeted to small businesses. What we're going to see is an expansion of this to entities with annual turnover up to $50 million. Before you get so very excited, this doesn't apply to things like the small business CGT concessions or the small business restructure rollover. Seems that those will still stay as is. This will apply to things like immediate deductions for startup expenses. It will apply for the simplified trading stock rules. It will apply for a fringe benefits some fringe benefits tax exemptions, which I'll I'll come to in a second. And the most interesting one, I think, in this list is that there'll be a two-year time limit for the commissioner to amend tax assessments for businesses from the 2022 financial year onwards. So we basically have three thresholds now to define a small business. <laughs> we have three thresholds for the small business turnover test. We have 2 million for, for the small business CGT concessions. We have 10 million for the restructure rollover. And then we have 50 million for the simplified stock rules for the startup expenses and FBT expenses and all the other small yeah. things that don't really yeah. cost that much money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the two year. So I think the most interesting thing, well, from my perspective, the most interesting thing there is a two year time limit for for the commissioner. So so it's not not a four year period. It's only a two year period. It'll be interesting to see how that works. Yeah, the the papers talk about carve outs for entities with significant international tax dealings or particularly complex affairs. 
but there's no guidance what those actually mean or how those will be determined. So, so that will be interesting to see what that looks like in, uh, in practice. Do you know how much this is going to cost? Because my, my gut feeling is that this is actually not going to cost much because the big thing that would have costed, cost a lot, the small business CGT concessions, that is stubbornly still at $2 million. So my gut feeling is this is not an expensive measure. Am I right? No, no, you're right. You're right. It's expected to cost 105 million over the forward estimates period. So compared to things where we're talking about 25 billion dollars, 100 million is comparatively quite small. So now we come to number five. Business number five: FBT exemption for parking and multiple portable electronic devices. Following on from the point about the small business entity turnover threshold, there'll be an FBT exemption introduced for eligible small business entities. And, and here we're talking about the $50 million annual turnover hurdle. So if business has less than $50 million of um, turnover, then it will be exempt from FBT on car park benefits provided to employees And also providing multiple work-related portable electronic devices to employees. So obviously, FBT is one of the, I guess, most punitive uh, ways of ways of tax as it is levied at the top marginal rate. This will allow small business entities to be able to incentivize their employees through car parking benefits and potentially provision of multiple portable electronic devices. And it makes sense because now, of course, you don't, especially during a lockdown or so, you don't want your employees to take public transport. Hence, it is good that you can offer them car parking so that they don't have to park five miles away from the office. And then the same, of course, with working from home to have multiple portable electronic devices. Yeah. It makes sense as well. Absolutely. I suppose the only thing that doesn't um, make complete sense is that the This is going to come into effect from 1 April 2021. So that's still another six months away. We might still be in COVID situation at that time, but it's not going to come into effect for, for another six months. It really surprises me. I would have thought that would have been backdated to the 1st of March, you know, when we started going into lockdowns. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Of course, we're dealing with the FBT year, so it's, it is a different cycle, but... Um, Yeah, you make a good point. Yeah, they didn't backdate that to the current FPT year. It's only to the one that's coming up. Yep. First of April. Yes. Okay, so mm -hmm. that one is probably not so useful given its timing. <laughs> yep. And the last one that I wanted to, to raise was... Business number six, tax residency of companies. Corporate tax residency. Now, company can be a resident of Australia for tax purposes. One, if they're incorporated in Australia. So if a company is incorporated in Australia, it's a resident. But a company that's a non, non, not incorporated in Australia can still be a resident of Australia for tax purposes. There was a long-held view that for a company to be a resident of Australia for tax purposes... They needed to be carrying on a business in Australia. So, in other words, to be a resident of Australia, they needed to be carrying on a business in Australia and they needed to have their central management and control in Australia. There was two, two conditions to be met. 
case in 2016 called Biowater Investments turned that on, on its head, which was a high court case. And what the court said in that case was essentially that the two tests were, were really one test. It was really all about where central management control was located and not about whether there's a business being carried on in Australia. So just to give you an example, let's say you've got an Australian company and it has a subsidiary overseas, let's say Germany. And although that company is the German company is incorporated overseas, doesn't do business in Australia because it could have a central management control in Australia because of by virtue of its head company, there's a risk that that company would be a resident of Australia for, for tax purposes, which um, sounds a bit absurd. What the changes that were announced in the budget will do is they'll essentially reverse the decision of the high water investments from 2016. And this will apply retrospectively back to March 2017. That date's relevant because that's the date that the ATO withdrew their tax ruling on the subject. So what these changes will do is they'll make it clear that a foreign incorporated company is only a tax resident if, one, it has core commercial activities in Australia and, two, it has its central management and control in Australia. So it's making it clear that just having central management control in Australia is not enough. You do need to have those core commercial activities in Australia as well. So this is um, very much welcomed because the Biowater case made it very muddy and introduced quite a lot of risk to foreign companies being um, treated as tax residents of Australia, which is very difficult to sort of explain to uh, people who are not so familiar with the Australian tax system. This take you by surprise because it takes me completely by surprise that a budget would address a complicated international tax issue like this. It's a bit interesting because a lot of the measures in the budget are, um, I guess, more straightforward and clear cut, whereas this is a pretty complex area. But it, it doesn't surprise me because it, it it makes a lot of sense. I guess you don't usually see these things as part of the budget announcements, but I suppose it was a convenient time to, to add this into. And it's actually quite quite straightforward in the sense that it's essentially putting back in place the status quo. Now, of course, it might not be actually the same because we'll have to see legislation and so forth, but um, it, it's really turning the clock back, um, so to speak, um, back to what people previously interpreted the test to require anyway. The first thing is that it surprised me how it was announced. But the second thing is also just that it really surprises me in itself, because that's basically a big slap in the face for the ATO, because the ATO came out as a big winner of the high court case. Mr. Vandergoot mm. was, you know, the pariah yes. of the nation. I think he's, he had been in prison a number of times for this. He was really you know, ridiculed and various things. And so now everything is basically put back to normal the way it was. So that basically means Mr. Vandergood was imprisoned for nothing, was fined and he had quite a few other transgressions to deal with. I think there was quite a lot of other things and I know um, the Commissioner of Tax made some comments and I, I, won't, I won't get into Mr. Gould's circumstances, but one aspect of Bywater and what came out is that that previous view that there was two tests, which practitioners in the ACO both held, the, the High Court's comments in that case made it clear that that 
that view wasn't sustainable anymore. So it sort of forced the ATO to to change their their view. And and to the ATO's credit, they were pretty good with providing guidance on the central management and control issue and a few sort of safe harbours to to ensure that um, all these foreign incorporated companies didn't suddenly just become Australian residents. So, so the ATO was really forced by the decision of the court to adopt that approach. So I think it's just restoring restoring clarity for everyone, really, this amendment. Good. So, so in just very simple terms, even if your central management and control is in Australia, as long as your core commercial activities are not in Australia, and you are, of course, not registered in Australia as a company, but as long as your core commercial activities are outside of Australia you qualify as a non-resident of Australia for tax purposes. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, you need to have, you'll be a non-resident if you're not incorporated here and you don't have core commercial activities in Australia, regardless of anything else. Exactly, irregardless of whether your central management control is here or not. Yes, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, 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 provides a bit more certainty. I had not expected this to come through the budget, but it's uh, it's good news. It's good yeah. news for our international clients. Well, those are the things that are more interesting to me, anyway. I guess the things that aren't in the budget. There's a number of um, there's the number of measures that are sort of sort of floating around. Um, there's the Division Seven A reform that was first flagged four years ago, almost now, which has been postponed yet again. Did Division Seven uh, A got- get a <laughs> It did have a one-line mention because I think I believe there was a mid-year economic update that made the comment that Division 7A changes would be postponed and it just reiterated that statement. So other than that, there was no mention of Division 7A. I think that one's really, um, it's gone back to the drawing board and there's going to be some, some time before we get um, movement on that. Okay, and the other things that are floating around? There's a review of the CGT rollovers that the Board of Tax are doing, and they're reporting to government on that next month, I believe. There was also a review of the tax concessions for small businesses, including a review of the small business CGT concessions. I believe that report has gone to government as well. So there wasn't any, there's no change at all to the small business CGT concessions. The other big one that I've got is uh, is the individual tax residency rules. So whether an individual's a resident of Australia for, for tax or not. Now, this one's probably slipped down the list a little bit with all the travel restrictions. So it's probably uh, a bit clearer whether someone's a resident or not at the moment because um, people are a lot less mobile. But that's another one on the, on the watch this space. It could become a residency test for us. Where were you during COVID? Mm. If you were in Australia during COVID, you were residents. If you were outside, then you clearly clearly had a, a place yeah. of abode outside. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. But none of these floating around measures got a mention last night. So the review of the CGT rollover, the tax concessions for small business and the individual tax residency, none of that was mentioned last night. No, no. In summary, the measures focused on personal income tax cuts, some FBT concessions, and a number of measures for businesses centred around increased deductions, possible job credits, and loss carryback measures. So those, those are probably the big ticket items that come out and a few smaller items which we which, which have talked about through, during this um, discussion. The other thing I didn't mention was R&D. There was a small R&D tax change, but 
it's, it's not particularly interesting and it's, it's not an area I really practice in very much as well. So I haven't, I haven't mentioned that. Welcome back. Before we part, quickly something else. You sent us a question asking whether you recognize JobKeeper and Cashflow Boost on a cash or accrual basis. My understanding is the Cashflow Boost and also the JobKeeper, you basically just recognize on a cash basis. So you recognize the Cashflow Boost when you receive it and the same with the JobKeeper. You just book it whenever you receive it. Do you agree? I don't think you raise accruals for JobKeeper or Cashflow Boost or anything else that's coming out of this budget. So as in like for JobKeeper, do you, do you book it when you make the payments for the fortnight or do you book it when you receive the, the cash at the end of the fortnight? Yes, exactly. Book the wages as they become due and then you recognize the JobKeeper as you receive the payment. Do you agree with that or do you think it should be however you account for your wage payments, you should also account for the JobKeeper? I haven't thought about the issue or looked at it at all, so I'll preface my comment with that. But I would have thought you would do it the same as you do for your wages because, yeah, once you do everything you're entitled to get that money, then you are sort of entitled to it. You know, the actual transfer of it is a like you're ready, you're already entitled to it. Yeah, that would, that would be my thoughts, but it's probably worth checking it with the ATO. They've yes. got a view on it. Yes. Okay, good. So the JobKeeper you handle, which however you treat your wages, however you book your wages, and the cash flow boost hmm. you just recognize on a cash basis, correct? Yeah, the cash flow boost, I don't think you could recognize any earlier than the time you you actually get it because yes. it's you've got to lodge bazzers and so forth to, to be entitled to it in the first place. In the next episode, episode 263, Andrew Henshaw, we talk about the need for a capital gain to occur in connection with your retirement to claim the 15-year exemption and to show you that there might be a way to claim the 15-year exemption even if there is no retirement. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.